You are listening to the Heavenly Chi podcast. Thanks for listening. And today I'm joined again by the lovely Nava Carmen. Welcome, Nava. Hi, Claire. My virtual friend continues to amaze me that we have been talking to each other for so many years without ever having met. Bonkers, isn't it? It's so bonkers. I was actually thinking um, earlier today that I might plan a trip to London one of these days and I was imagining what it might be like to meet you in the flesh. I'm very, very short. I was thinking <laughs> and, and you would probably say, wow, you're so tall. And that if, <laughs> if we did a hug, it might be the height <laughs> might be unexpected. unexpected. We come over to the conference in October. I might do that. That'd be so amazing. Would you give a talk for us? Possibly. Mm. I'll be into it. <laughs> if you're listening and it's still 2022 and it hasn't hit October yet, do have a look at the, uh, the conference that Nava's running. It's a fertility conference for those of you who are fertility practitioners or wanting to become a fertility-focused practitioner. Um, check it out. It will be, if you're in the UK, you have to go. Um, if you're nearby or able to get to the UK, then really consider it. We'll put a link in the show notes to, um, to check it out. And it'll be the first one in about 15 years that it's done in the UK. So it's definitely time for it. And you can go to at Fertility Support on Insta and look in my bio or in my posts and you'll see lots of information about it as we roll it out. Awesome. And if you're listening in the future and it's already 2023, then sorry you missed it. Hopefully it'll be an annual thing if it goes well. Yeah, awesome. That would be really nice. But we are planning to record it and release the recording. So there'll be an international way of getting hold of what we do in fertility support training with all our acupuncturists that will be useful, I think. Fabulous. I'm also saying that, you know, the beauty of having a friendship that transcends the place we're living in is that I was able to give Claire a call and go, right, I've never done this before, but you have, what do I need to know? And bless you for having downloaded your knowledge to me to hopefully make the conference work that much better because I'm not starting from scratch. Yeah. Not having to reinvent the wheel is, um, is a wonderful place to start. And even having you say, take a week off before and after, I never would have thought about it, but I have scheduled a week off before and after and just, I can see how that will change everything. Yeah, you'll need it. I can imagine. Okay, so today we, we are going to be talking about the initial consultation. Uh, this is my favourite thing, one of my favourite things to talk about in mentoring because that initial consultation encapsulates and says so much about our businesses, about our thought processes about the customer journey we've established, about the systems and processes we have in place, about um, our selling skills even after that initial consultation. So we have clients coming to us. It's not just a one-off visit. It says something about our funnels. It says something about our boundaries. It just encapsulates. It's a vehicle for really understanding what you can do with your business and with yourself as a practitioner. There's so many aspects to it. And I really like that you touched on the sales process as part of the initial consultation because, in fact, the, the patient's experience with us as practitioners and with our clinics happens long before they ever meet us in the, in the consult, whether it's a 
telehealth consult online or whether they're physically coming into your clinic, their experience starts with their first touch points with you, whether it's on social media, whether they've called your clinic, visited your website or heard about you via word of mouth, however it is that they first came to learn about you and how they've gone through the process to make that step to make the appointment with you. What was that experience like for them? How did they then interact with your clinic in between when they booked that first appointment and when they actually arrived to the first appointment? Is there anything that happens in there in that space of time or do they just kind of bobble around in the ether in between time? You know, like there's there's so many ways in which we constantly communicating to our patients and our prospective patients who we are, what our values are as practitioners. And um, and I think that it's important to pay some attention to that because uh, we could potentially be inadvertently giving people the wrong message about who we are. We might, we might be um, inadvertently giving them a different message than we, than we might think we are. All right. Would it be useful to break it down into the different elements? So before they get to us, when they're in the room with us and what happens afterward? Yeah, let's do that. So I'm always aware beforehand, especially in the age of social media, that a lot of the time people are watching, but they're not necessarily liking, following or interacting with me. So the messages I've put out are talking to people I don't even know are there. So I'm aware of eyes on that and I'm very careful with and thoughtful, not so much careful, but thoughtful about um, most of my social media is speaking to practitioners, but when I do speak to patients or when I'm doing practitioner education for patients and I know patients follow that, I'm always aware of my tone and my manner and the person I am trying to come across in that. So it's not a surprise. It's not incongruent when they actually sit in front of me. I think that's really important uh, for people, you know, and I, I think I have a similar attitude towards, towards social media in that I want to be authentic, authentically me in the ways in which I show up online so that there's no surprises when people meet me in the flesh. They kind of go, wow, you're just like I expected, only taller. <laughs> might, <laughs> might be the type of comment that they that comes my way. And I think there's something in there too about bringing yourself into social media. I mean, this is a whole different topic, but so much social media that I see from practitioners are very factual um, or they've gone completely the other way and it's a blend of personal and professional that doesn't really allow me to see who they are as practitioners. But there's something for me about bringing together who you are and what you think about what you're saying, not just saying the things you're saying. That feels really important. So you can give me a fact, but I'd like to know what you think about that fact. You can talk about a success story that you've had, but tell me what you think about it. Tell me what you thought when the patient walked in. Tell me what happened behind the scenes in that experience. Let people actually see who you are as a person and a practitioner in there. And also I think that's a really good way if you're someone who isn't comfortable showing your personal stuff on uh, social media, it's a good way of making the person, the, the audience, be able to see who you are without revealing information you're not comfortable with. What's your take on that? I think it's really important to, for us to distinguish ourselves as practitioners because part of how people choose us is going to be based on the vibe 
that they get? You know, do they get a good vibe from us? And that's going to come from a lot of those non, non-verbal cues that we might be communicating via, you know, our videos or pictures that we post up or what we don't post as well is going to communicate just as much. And I think if we, if we are willing to provide opinions and to show where we stand on certain things, it allows people to go, yes, I agree with that and I'm going to select this person. I really like the way that she talks about guitar playing or like it could be something completely unrelated to yourself as a practitioner. You know, I remember, you know, I'm just thinking as an example, a GP that I had in my 20s and I love the fact that she had a Bachelor of Music as well as having, a, you know, being a GP and she'd been to medical school. I love that she had a Bachelor of Music and that's why I chose her. So it wasn't, it actually wasn't anything to do with her medical skills. It was about her extracurricular. So, you know, I think that there's some value in those things as well. You know, people can get a sense of who you are as a person based on your non-work things that you might be willing to share with people. And especially for me, like I'm, I'm quite opinionated. Um, I'm quite a strong-willed. I had not noticed that about you. You haven't noticed it? we're laughing we have to actually laugh out loud for the podcast because the viewers can't see your cheeky grin Nava (laughs) as you're saying that (laughs) um and I and I'm the same way with with my patients you know very lovingly will tell them off if they need it but you know just kind of like point them in the right direction um with a lot of you know with a lot of conviction behind what I say and and the and that's part of my personality and part of who I am. And so I want people to get a sense of that before they even book in with me because I know I'm not always everyone's cup of tea. And, um, and for me, especially, you know, as I've been in practice, you know, as, as the years go by, I'm more and more interested in people, the right people choosing me earlier and people who might be a better match for another practitioner, inviting them and sort of creating, um, I guess, funnels for them to self-select away somewhere else earlier in the process. I'd rather not have someone come and be in a consult with me and go through that process. Perhaps they've waited a little while to get that consult. If they're not a good match for me, I'd much rather them work that out earlier in the process. Um, and so some of my, the, the way that I've set up especially my language that I've chosen to use on my website and in my booking process is, is set up around that particular outcome that I'm trying to achieve. I agree with you. I think that's really important. And I think there's something about the confidence of being yourself that translates on a lot of levels because I often get asked about, and it's slightly tangential, but, but along the same veins, like, you know, what do you do with patients who don't take herbs? And I'm like, I never have that problem because I'm really clear about who I am and what my expectations are and how I work. And people either get on board with that, or I support them in finding a practitioner that will work the way they want to work. So that clarity about who you are supports that process all the way through and ultimately gets you the results, you know, you can get because you're not fighting with your clients. I 100% agree with you the amount of patients I have who take raw herbs, you know, they boil up their raw herbs. They, they drink almost anything that I give them 
they'll take almost anything that I give them. And, and I think that comes down to, and we probably go into it a little bit more, but the way that you conduct yourself as a practitioner and the way that you set up your consultations, that we're not asking our patients to do us a favour by taking, you know, we're, we're making a prescription. We're their health provider, we're their doctor, and we are prescribing their medicine. It's part of our journey that we have mapped out for them. And that's part of, no one knows how much you know, right? They only know how confident you are in giving them that information. And I think if you have confidence in mapping their journey and helping them see where you're planning to go with them and getting their input on that journey, that combination of being held and listening is really profound in terms of the results that you get. And what's your first touch point? When someone's sort of seen you and they're like, they decide to get in, t- in touch with you, what are the ways people can get in touch with you to book? What are your funnels like? So I, I do from time to time get people reaching out to me on social media, but the vast majority of people will come via my website and will either book online or will ring the clinic or they'll email the clinic. And I'm happy for people to be in touch in any of those ways because people have different internal processes that they need to fulfil in, you know, when they're making a decision around working with a health provider. Some people love the idea of being able to book in without having to talk to anyone. That's me. I'm raising my hand here. I'm a bit of an introvert. And, um, and I love not having to talk to people. If I can just make a decision, right, I want to see this person, I want to book in with them. And if I can do that entire process without having to, without having any hiccups, there's no stalling, there's no, oh, you're an initial patient, you have to ring to make that booking. I just want to be able to get it done. So I, I don't make it hard for people to book in to see me. Um, and then there's other people that couldn't think of anything worse. They, they want to, they need to speak to a physical person to get that internal feeling of congruence that, yes, I'm ready to book in. Um, And so, you know, my admin staff are well trained on what my expectations are around how we communicate to those prospective patients and um, they answer the questions and, um, and if that person is a good match for me and for the clinic, then um, then they'll go ahead and book them in. Um, and same with email. Some people just like to have things happen by email. They like that visual communication happening back and forth. And so um, any of those ways of booking in is what happens at my clinic. What about you, Ava? Well, this is a really valuable conversation to have because we have very different practices. So it's really nice to have this contrast in our ways of doing things. So I tend to have at any one time somewhere between three and six months waiting list. And so I don't kind of moved away from the more open way of doing things. So you can't book online. There's only, I funneled everybody very narrowly. There's only one way to book in and that's through my PA. And people get usually an email that sort of talks about the priority I place on customer service. So I only take on the number of clients I know that I can hold in the process to the best of my ability. And so it's kind of a one out, one in process. And then I'm able to say to the person who's inquired, would you like to go on the waiting list? And that's another funnel. Or would you prefer to go and see somebody I've trained and here's the link and let us know your postcode and we'll find you the person in your area who can 
hold you in your journey if you want something earlier. And sometimes when I get inquiries for IVF support, we have a, a, an email that goes out to them too that says, I'm sorry, I don't do IVF support. I only do minimum of four months with somebody to prepare them. And then after that, if you still need IVF, I will support you in that. So there's a whole series of emails that we have and communications we have that we use depending on the person coming into us. And either we're pulling them into our internal funnel or whether directing them away to somebody we know we can trust. And if they've gone, no, okay, no problem. Yeah, we're up for it. We're up for the way NAVA works, which they've mostly are because they've already seen all my social media or they've seen my website. If we're up for the way that I work, they go on a waiting list. And then depending on how pressured I'm feeling, I may or may not get in touch with them on that waiting list. Sometimes that waiting list is really long and I know that I can't get to everybody. And so I make the conscious choice not to nurture that list in the hope that they will then go back and find someone else. We do check in with them and say, are you still happy to wait? And if not, here's where you go. And sometimes if I feel like I might need more clients, I will nurture that list by getting in touch with them. Thank you for waiting. I really appreciate it. I know you're there. Here's something to be getting on with while you're waiting. And then I have a various things I'll ask them to do or suggestions I might make. So those are my touch points to right up into the point of booking in. Very different, but really it's like a nice to have that contrast and conversation. Yeah. The important thing to take from that for our listeners is that we've both thought a lot and about the process and there's a lot of conscious effort that's gone into creating a process that works for us as practitioners and the way that our clinics work. And at no point in that process between that person first getting in touch with us and then, and then getting in to see us, at no point has that client been left in silence or to flounder unless it's a conscious choice. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So then they booked in. What happens then? In, in my clinic, I take a payment before I take a payment in full for the first consultation plus a half hour it'll take me afterwards to write a report of that consultation because I've made the choice that I want clients to be really present in that consultation, not feel like they've got to scribble notes down and and do all the things. So I talk about it. We have this free flowing conversation and I'll write a report afterwards that encapsulates everything we've discussed. It has action plans, suggestions, tests they need, and then they can choose before they book into for the full shebang if they want to have a conversation about anything that's come up for them. Or they can go back and forth with my PA and ask her questions that I'll answer. Um, and I also include the option of direct communication with me. So for an additional fee, I, I offer a package where you can email back and forth with me as much as you'd like. What happens before they get in to see you in your clinic? So before their first consult they are um, so we take their credit card details we just reserve it we don't take the payment in full although that's we're very close to implementing that then there's an intake form that automatically goes out to them from my CRM and that asks all the questions and we also as part of um, the information that goes out to them we also invite them to send through all of the recent copies of blood tests, um, pathology results, um, any, you know, any reports from any procedures that they've had done, scans, that sort of thing. Uh, We get them to send that through ahead of time. And so then my admin team will attach that to their file so that when I've got a new patient coming in, I've got their full health history. I've got all of the answers to my Chinese medicine 
the, you know, the, the basic kind of Chinese medicine diagnostic questions. I've got access to their blood work, their pathology report. And the reason I do that is because it allows me time, rather than spending time on data collection, it allows me to spend more time drilling into more detail if I need to on certain areas that might be standing out um, in their in their health history or in um, in some of their pathology results, and it allows me to it, it's it creates more space for me. It's a much more um, spacious feeling as a practitioner where I can really nurture the patient. I can spend more time focusing on their story on um, working out their, you know, their emotional and mental health and well-being, how their life is kind of playing into their patterns of disharmony. So I've got all of the data and then I just look for, okay, how do I paint the picture? Um, and so the, that, that consult is all about um, painting the picture because I've already got that information there ahead of time. Because the consult form is so... Uh, that intake form is so detailed, it does serve as diagnostic as well. So sometimes um, people go, wow, okay, this is too full on and they'll pull out and that's fine by me. Sometimes they'll show up and they haven't filled out their form and they haven't sent in anything and they just rock up and they're just sitting there in my waiting room, um, oblivious to the fact that the world's just passing them by. Um, and that's diagnostic, right? Because how you show up in one place in, in your life is how you show up probably in most places in your life. And so all of these ways of, um, you know, people getting through that process and, you know, and what happens in the process of then getting to that consult with me is all part of my diagnostic process as much as, what is actually on the form it's how they go about that that also tells me about who they are and what they might need from me and you and I were actually talking about just this before we started recording about as I think it's interesting as you're moving toward taking the payment I'm moving toward doing this diagnostic report because some of the projects I, I have coming up will mean that I might not be able to spend the full 90 minutes with a client and actually for the first time I'm considering doing this pre-questionnaire, we ask about all the medical stuff, all the blood tests, all the operative reports, all the scans, all of that stuff, but I've never done a pre-questionnaire. So I'm now considering changing my process in, in light of that. And I really like how you describe it. it, gives you that spaciousness. I think that's a lovely thing. So my question to you is logistics around that. Now, I, I just, I don't charge for it, but I'm, whenever someone sends stuff in, I'm always ready. I've read it all. Do you do that too? Do you get ready for that consultation by reading everything they send before they've rocked up in the session? Yeah. So for me, it, it, the caveat to that, if they've sent through like a hundred pages of pathology results, I'm not going to have the time to look through all of that in detail and make notes in their chart before they arrive. Um, but I do, because of the way that my form is filled out, it's very easy for me to just kind of get a sense of where they're at in about two minutes. I can go through and I go, okay, here's probably, you know, top three possible Chinese medicine diagnostic patterns. And I'm going to be looking for evidence of that, um, in the consult. And, you know, I might spend maybe 60 seconds, maybe two minutes looking through their blood test results. Um, any you know other reports that they've got there so it probably takes me about five minutes tops 
to do that, even for a complex case, uh, very worthwhile because collecting that amount of data from a patient is going to take minimum 30 to 45 minutes if you're doing it conversationally, unless they're very, you know, that kind of metal element. <laughs> Which doesn't happen very often on a fertility journey because everyone's been through so much that there's a whole story to unwind and making the space to really be present with that story is probably that initial consultation really. Yeah. Now, there's one other layer that I do that I want to mention, which is something I learned when I was recording the Hearing Silences module, which we have on the platform with Professor Laura Serrant. So this is a, a module really around cultural competency. And perhaps also this is reflecting the much more diverse surroundings and community in which I live in London than maybe Melbourne has. But what she taught and what has been so valuable from having listened to her and, and learned from her is that our perceptions, um, especially as people who are white and hold privilege, of what that initial consultation is going to be like are often not quite right. And also potentially how somebody communicates isn't right. The way we think it ha happens for everybody isn't a thing. And what I mean by that is, for example, I have a what to expect in the first consultation form that goes out. And one of the things I'm really careful to say is that I do a tongue diagnosis and that that involves people sticking their tongue out and me looking at it and me needing to do that regularly. Because culturally speaking, if I haven't warned people that that's happening, that can be quite challenging. It can be, you know, it's rude in some countries, it's hugely invasive and intimate in other countries. And if they don't know it's coming, it's Quite challenging. And similarly, I deal with questions around FGM, which I have in my clinic, um, which is fortunately not something I see very often, but still is around. And there's a lot of stigma and there's a lot of prejudice against it um, and presumption, presumption in the fertility world around what that might mean for future generations. So being clear about that. And also in some of my the families I deal with here in the UK who may be from uh, Southeast Asia or Africa, the women don't always have access to privacy and communication. They don't always have access to their own uh, email address. And so addressing how we communicate and my expectations around what we're going to be saying and the intimacy in which we're going to be talking and the questions that might need to be answered between and even talking about menstrual blood, having that all up front has been really um, important to acknowledge the fact that we live in this culturally diverse area of London and that the intake, therefore, is going to be culturally competent um, for everybody who comes to my clinic. And similarly for when I'm treating trans or genderqueer people, to be really upfront about my pronouns and my understanding of trauma-informed work and things like that, also um, asking them about making space for terminology that they feel comfortable with. All of those things allows people to see that the kind of practitioner I am and the journey they'll be on. And again, like you say, self-select out. So if they see me talking about trans or genderqueer people and they're not comfortable, they'll exit. And that will be great because that will be not my client. And I think that's a really great point that you make because I know that you've put so much thought and attention and effort towards making your practice so inclusive in the last couple of years. It's been such an inspiration to see that and to hear how that plays out, you know, even at the level of, you know, welcome to my clinic email that comes out um, to, to that patient before they even meet you in the flesh. I think it's great. Um, and, and I think, oh, I've got to put that on my list. Am I accidentally offending people 
without even realising. Um, and I need to, I need to revisit all of my materials. I'm so chuffed I've inspired you. That makes me very happy. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, this, this, the learning from, I'm not diverting us too much, but the learning from this module has been so profound that I realised that in some cases that my actual history was wrong because I didn't understand, for example, that in people who have a Caribbean extract, they often will refer to step-siblings, half-siblings as brothers and sisters. And so my terminology, my understanding of the culture in which they grew up and my terminology that I was using to get medical information was actually misinforming and potentially like dangerous because I didn't understand what I didn't know. And so that's kind of been a big thing. And it's not just from a cultural competency point of view, but really centering the client when they, and we're kind of transitioning into the actual consultation here, I suppose, but when the client actually gets into us to center the fact that they are the experts in their own life and to come to it with an idea that they will tell us who they are and that we're going, I'm going to do my best to reserve the chatter in my head and the judgment that we all have about wanting to put someone in a box to really notice that it's happening and be able to put that aside. That's been quite a game changer for me. How so? Well, I didn't realise I was doing it for a long time. And then I realised how much I did it and how much it informed and how much I missed. And um, one of the things that I've talked about was my previous attitude toward people who are living in bigger bodies and that I did not cover myself in glory by some of the ways I was behaving. I talk about that quite openly as being kind of feeling so uncomfortable with the messaging that I'd grown up with around, um, around people in being people in bigger bodies being inherently unhealthy and how that was informing everything about how I was holding people in my practice from the size of the chairs I had to the conversations we had around the normal dietary questions that I might ask um, to even understanding that my table needed to be a different size and to looking at the stigma that a perfectly health, metabolically healthy person had if they were in a bigger body when it came to contacting fertility clinics. Some of the conversations were practically around eugenics. And so doing the fat and fertility course with Nicola Salmon that is on my website really opened my eyes to that chatter that I was having in my mind that made me, a, I think, a shamefully bad practitioner for many years for people who are living in bigger bodies. And I really had to own all of that and relearn and be conscious of that in my head before I could be competent to sit in a room with someone in a bigger body and hold them in the way they deserve to be held in that journey. It's such a powerful way that you share that transition for you and that growth for you, you know, for you in the way that it played out that you didn't realise you were doing it and then you realised how much you were doing. It's kind of like that, oh, shit moment of oh my God, like I can't believe this person that I was. You know, it's, um, there's so many moments like that for me in the last few years, not in that specific topic, but in, in other topics where it's almost like I've done a backflip on who I was to who I am now. And, I'm, and I feel like I want to apologise to so many of my previous patients and just just to say I'm so sorry that I didn't hear you with with an open heart so much judgment this there's so much um I'm trying to think of what the word is in the natural health world um of which we're you know we're part of that subset of of practitioners but there's so much this 
unachievable standards that are put out there and these kind of like these pop science ideas that aren't really backed up by evidence and they're so pervasive and they make their ways into our psyche even though we're most you know most of us are tertiary educated health professionals we should know better and we should hold ourselves to higher standards than we do but we're we're people as well you know and we're vulnerable to the compelling arguments people put forth around you know why we should be vegan and why we should be fasting and why we should be on low carb diets and why we should be eating fat free high fat you know like all of the ways in which even just in that genre of food and and nutrition advice there's so many ways in which we can be pulled off center and be pulled into these crazy fads that then we we then relay that information to our patients and that's just one example of ways in which we can be so damaging as as practitioners and we can lose our ability to have compassion and we can lose our ability to see diagnostically important information for for what it is you know continuing with this example if i'm looking at if we look at chinese medicine nutrition information we look at what it says in the neijing about grains you know and we're talking about the spleen and the stomach and we're talking about you know wheat nourishes the heart and rice I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong. Rice nourishes the spleen and I think it's millet is for the kidneys, something like that. Someone's going to correct me, I'm sure. I'm just, I'm trying to just spontaneously off the top of my head remember the correspondence. I've had had something say I have no idea. So good, go girl. I don't know. (laughs) But, you know, but if, if if we forget that, you know, on some level, if someone, you know, and we even use wheat as a, as a Chinese herb, we use sprouted wheat as a Chinese herb and it has a particular, you know, affinity for, for the heart and we use it as a slightly shen calming effects. But then somehow we translate that into collecting information about someone's diet and then we want to gluten shame them. Um, and we've got to tell them that they have to come off gluten and gluten's bad and it's, you know, and it's never been good for anyone. And it's, you know, unless you're having organic spelt sourdough that's an ancient preserved you know 2000 year old spelt strain like you know we we become these warriors of these um of these modern day fads and we can we can lose some of the nuance i think as as practitioners and um even though we're meant to be talking about the initial consult i think it's you know if we just come back to the the way in in general in which we show up for our patients and if we um, you know, if we're thinking about who are we as practitioners and who who are we in that initial consult and as we're gathering the info, for me, the more, you know, the way that I've taken all of these shocking ways in which I've judged my patients <laughs> over the years, the approach that I'm having now is is one of more curiosity than anything. And I just want to be curious about it and I just want to listen and I just want to hear more about it and if people are telling me about oh you know I really um you know have this have this thing that's going on that previously I might have judged I go well tell me more about that I'm curious to hear more about that what what do you think is behind that and hearing what the patient has to say and using it more as 
data collection for me and just helping to try and paint that picture of who the patient is. And inside it feels really obvious that I'm kind of like stepping out of that judgmental space and just stepping back into curiosity. That's kind of my antidote at the moment. I love that you've used the word judgment in this because I think when you're saying, I want to go back and apologize to my clients, there's two things that I hear. I hear myself because I have that impulse too. And I hear how hard we judge ourselves as practitioners, right? We, part of the journey for me has been stepping aside from like my natural tendency that everything has to be perfect. I have to be perfect. Like the patriarchy has told me if I don't show up in this way, I'm getting it wrong. And I don't like to get things wrong. And like all the judgment I heap on myself and how hard I am on myself as opposed to going, you know, I did the best at the time with what I knew. And now I know better. I do better. But also realizing as you're, you know, you're, as you're saying, you're sitting with curiosity, how much nicer it is for ourselves as practitioners too, because, you know, as we judge others, we judge ourselves, right? So I remember having conversations like you about oh, gluten is terrible. And like, I wasn't eating gluten at the time. And like, I was taking the hard thing I was doing to myself that, and putting it on someone else. So I think the more we're able to step away from judgment of others, it also allows us to step away from judgment of ourselves and just be a bit nicer to ourselves. And the person we turn up as, or the practitioner we turn up as in that initial consultation comes with such a different energy to, to it, I hope. I try um, to bring something different than I used to bring to that initial consultation. So what happens in your consultation? The client comes in, you sit there. Is there any communicate? You Obviously, it's a fact-finding mission and it's a, an information about emotions and mental health and family and culture. And it's, it's this mission to get to know our clients so we know what we can do to help. Do you or how do you convey what you want from them or what is going to happen in the following sessions or how long you'd like them to be with you? How do you convey those things in that initial consultation? Um, So I think I'll probably step back one step. Occasionally, if there's going to be anything that might um, interrupt, potentially interrupt the flow of the consult, I'll frame that up at the start of the session. So sometimes um, just because of the way that I run my clinic and the way that bookings happen and and so forth. Occasionally I've got a patient in another room who's got needles in and I need to go and take those needles out at some point during this person's consult. So I let them know I've got an alarm on my phone and my phone will twinkle at us in about 15 minutes to tell me it's time to go and take the needles out from the other patient. And I'm going to take two minutes to excuse myself and either side of that, you have my full attention. And so that's that's how I'll start that just to, I mean, it's never ideal. It's not the way that I like to run my initial consults, but sometimes it's just how life turns out. And so I, that's how I, that's how I do it. My initial consult, usually I allow about an hour. Um, And during that time I can get everything done. I can probably, I'm starting to edge towards trimming that down to a 40 minute consult because the reason I need that extra 20 minutes is because I don't have enough handouts and documentation. Um, And once I get those done, then I'll be able to just go, right, go read this and we'll talk about it next time or go watch this video or, you know, all that kind of jazz. And so for me in the, in the consult, you know, I, I thank them for, I say thank you for filling out my very long form because it is very long. It takes them a long time to fill it out. And, um, 
and that can, you know, sometimes there's some, some warmth and some interaction that comes from that. Um, and then depending on what's going on for them, usually I just rephrase and reword what they've listed as their main complaints and their main reason for wanting to come and see me. And I just say, so, you know, you've got, you've got a lot of, you've got a few things going on here. You've got this, this, and this. And I'll just say, tell me about, tell me about this. You know, how's this been for you? Um, how long has this been going on? Or I might offer um, some kind of prompt for them to go into storytelling mode about their um, their health challenges and, and their relationship to what those challenges are. Um, and from there, we just kind of organically let things flow. And it's really just about me checking my, getting the extra pieces of data that I'm looking for, because I've already got everything that I need just about to be able to put things into place in terms of being able to write a herbal prescription, come up with some kind of nutrition plan, have an idea of what their treatment timeframe might be like. Um, So I'm really just looking for those internal signals of congruency that I look for where I want to work with this person. Um, I don't always want to take on patients. um, So I'm looking to see if they're a good match for me and the way that I work and if there's that kind of vibe there. If I don't get that vibe, then I'm pushing them towards here is a plan for you to self-manage or here is a plan for you to go and work with another practitioner rather than here's the plan of how we're going to work together. So usually by, you know, by the time I'm about a third to half the way into the consult, I've already worked out which way I'm going um, and then I kind of direct things in that particular direction. How do you manage that if somebody is coming to see you and you want them to see someone else? How do you manage that conversation? Very upfront. I just say I don't think I'm the best match for you. I think that this person's going to be a better match if I've got that particular person in mind or it may just be I'm going to come up with a plan for you and we're going to try and get you self-managing um, or, you know, it, it'll be a plan for you to um, to work on on your own over the next few months because I think, you know, and I'll give the reasons why why I think that. It's often in response to, you know, I'll reflect back to them what I'm hearing or what I'm observing. You know, I'm hearing that you don't have a lot of time or I'm hearing that you're not really sold on the idea of, you know, of Chinese medicine. They, you know, they might be asking a lot of, um, they, it's, it's kind of like intuitive things that I'm observing and noticing and I'll just reflect back to them to get that confirmation or not about have I got it right. You know, I'm hearing that you haven't got a lot of time to be doing this or, you know, diet is a really important part of the healing of the particular health challenge that you're working with and I'm hearing that you haven't got a lot of space for working with that at the moment and I'm just concerned about you being able to get the results that you're looking for. Is there going to be a better time this year or a better time in a few months' time where it might be possible for you to make those changes um, and just kind of, you know, looking for different ways of being able to shift their focus to either working with someone else, working with me at a later time when they're ready or um, just setting them up in a way that they're not going to be in my clinic seeing me all the time. Yeah. 
I have to say that as you're talking, I'm thinking what you're saying is they're red flags. They're, they're red flags for you as a practitioner that tell you that actually to stay within your integrity, you can't treat them. There are things about them that you know if you take their money will not end up with either you or their satisfaction at the end. And the skill is to identify that as soon as possible and to have the confidence to know that if that person leaves, someone else will come um, and that it is far better for us and our reputations to be in integrity when it comes to, to any red flags that we're seeing. And that makes me think two things. I think money is a big red flag for me. Um, and I also think that it's important to say that um, the, what we're talking about is also a reflection of the fact that Claire and I have been in practice for a long time and we have a reputation built up. I don't think necessarily that when you're starting off, you have the luxury to select patients like that. You've got to, at least initially, I hustled my ass. I took everything, right? I treated every man and anyone who walked in my clinic who wanted to offer me their credit card, yeah. get on my table and give me a credit card. Like I will make it work. <laughs> and you can't shortcut that process. So like this is a process of us a lot, you know, we only, we can only have this conversation because we took everybody. So if you're just starting out and you're listening to this, don't feel like you've immediately got to go out and like self-select because you need to have that hard yakka. You need to go through all of the patients that don't work for you in order to know what does work for you. Yeah. And to find, to find your way. And for some of, for some of us, it happens um, quicker. And for others, it takes us a long time to get to this place. Um, you know, what I thought I would end up specialising in is not what I've ended up specialising in, but that's fine. You know, I've happily readjusted my direction and readjusted my sales um, as the years have gone by. And I now have a practice that I love and I love coming to work. And if there's ever a time when I'm, you know, if I look at my calendar and I think, oh, no, I don't have the energy for this particular person, I always reflect back and go, okay, what, what is going on here? What, where's the incongruence? Um, you know, what's the challenge here? Is this my stuff or is this, you know, um, do I need to refer this person on and why? There's lots of ways in which... I've had to create my practice so that it's sustainable for me. I don't work five full days a week, not, nothing near it. And so I've got to be mindful of my energy levels and I've got to be mind, very mindful of my boundaries because anything that crosses over those boundaries is going to impact, you know, potentially on my energy levels, on my health, my, you know, my ability to enjoy coming to work, my staff's ability to enjoy coming to work. If there's someone that comes in that just upsets the entire clinic, it's, it's not worth it. It's not worth their consult fee. I'm pretty, I've, I've got a pretty strong energy um, and most people are quite good at respecting the boundaries that I put up. And if there's people who kind of go beyond that, then they're not welcome in my, in my clinic and I very, um, as politely as I can, tell them that they um, they need to go seek help elsewhere it's important I think for work to be especially for me at my stage in life and the other people I share clinic with it's important for clinic to be a haven for us like we need to come to work and and enjoy being at work it needs to be a, a haven for our patients and I think as a side note but I hope that it's um, relevant to this conversation as well is that you know the way that our clinics are presented my opinion about clinics is that they are a place for our patients. 
and they they are there for our patients. They're not there as a way for us to express our individuality and our, you know, like that's why we have houses and other and other places like it. And if your home's in your clinic, that's, a, I guess, the, you know, the line's even more important to make that distinction. But our patients need to feel comfortable and at home and at ease and at peace. It needs to be a space of healing for people. And I think if people get that sense when they walk in, that's, that's as much an important part of our practice as any other um, thing that we might do or say to them. I want to go back, as you said, three important things that I want to touch on. Um, boundaries. That's a big thing because what's fascinating to me is that again and again, when I mentor practitioners, those who are struggling to convert clients from the initial consultation into ongoing consultations, those who struggle with people who don't respect their suggestions and advice, those who struggle with clients who feel that, you know, complaining to them about how expensive they are. Um, and, And when I talked about money being a red flag, earlier, that's what I meant, that if I have a client who starts off telling me how expensive I am and how much I cost, that's a red flag to me that they're not in the right place because that's not the energy I want to be working with in the clinic. They either know how much I, they know how much I charge because I've charged them up front. They either are on board or not. And if they're on board, they're all in. And if I've got one foot out the door and it's about money, then I've got to give them to another practitioner. That's not for me. But those boundaries that you're talking about are, they, they're internal boundaries that you're talking about, not just external, not just saying to clients who don't, like you say, who pollute the chi of the clinic, it's not working, but it's all about like, what is okay for me to accept as a practitioner? Is it okay for me to have a client who comes in to see me and who doesn't do what I ask them to do? Mm. Is it okay for me to have a client who um, doesn't want to come and see me the number of times that I think they need to come for me to get the result, but still wants the result? Can I communicate that that's fine to come in however many times you want to come in, but this is what you'll get? Or am I going to have a boundary that says, actually, this is not okay with me. I'm interested in getting you here and I'm not the practitioner for you because I have a boundary around you know, me being in charge of my own expertise and not, it, it not being okay for you to tell me how many times that you're going to come to see me. So internal boundaries around what is okay, your own value, your own respect for your knowledge and your expertise and your own understanding of the journey you intend to take them on, I think directly reflects or directly reflects often your client intake, your turnover, your retention and your income. So boundaries in and out, right? And a lot of the time in the mentoring process, we're really looking at self-care, value, confidence, all of those things that are tucked within boundaries in order to be able to be a practitioner who is successful and makes money. So I think that's really interesting. Mm. Um, you also touched on clinic look. And again, love the difference between you and I, my clinic. I'm out at the moment because I'm redecorating, but my clinic's in my front room where I'm sitting now. And I hate, I mean, bless her, my friend who runs an osteopathic clinic has lent me her room and I'm ever so grateful for it. I have been very grateful for it, but ah. Oh, I hate it. I want to be back in my house. I want to be back (laughs) holding everybody in this beautiful environment that I've created and that I have everything I need right here. I don't have to schlep it back and forward. And I'm literally in the process of (laughs) like take you to my, (laughs) my bit of my room where I've got curtain samples pinned up to try and create the environment I want. 
but the intentionality of that environment is I, in this room, from the moment they walk up my driveway and see my front garden, which is beautifully tended to my bright yellow front door, to the area in which they wait, to, to the, the room, the bathroom they use, to the room itself, I want to have a, a feeling of somebody coming into a luxury spa. That's where I'm going with that. It's really, and it's different to the rest of my house, which has two children in it and does not look like that, unfortunately. Um, but, <laughs> but this area is like the beautiful, pristine area in which I spent all my days working and I see my clients and I bring, in fact, the opposite to what you're saying. I bring my stuff to it. I, want, I bring the atmosphere that I want to create for them to that. But both of us have it doesn't matter what the outcome is. We have this really clear intention and thought through experience that we're bringing to this. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. And that, and the thing is, you know, there's, there's that, um, that thoughtfulness and the intention that you want it, you want it to have a certain vibe and you want that vibe to be a vibe that's going to be useful for your patients. And that's what I was getting at. There's no right way, is there? Well, there, there are wrong ways. There are wrong ways. You need to have clean toilets yeah. <laughs> and you need to have, um, you know, you can't have obvious piles of dirt and like sticky door handles and just things that are gross. Like you've got to be clean. I remember going for, a, made a really big impact on me. I was a very well-known uh, acupuncturist and herbalist in the UK I went to see and I had a first thing in the morning appointment with this, this practitioner. I'm carefully not identifying by gender. Um, and that person had cycled from King's Cross to where the clinic was, which was probably about 45 minutes away, and had arrived for the consultation with me first thing in the morning, ringing wet, sweaty, and smelling very bad. And I was like, nah, I don't care how great you are. I'm not, this is not for me. So there's something about hygiene in there and about how you're coming to this clinic mindful of the clients sort of in a neutral way, in a clean and neutral way, that feels very important to me as a practitioner. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. An extreme example, but one that made a profound impact. We all have our limits, Nava. <laughs> <laughs> you met yours that day. It did. <laughs> I want to come back to boundaries. There was something else that I wanted to, to bring to that. And I've noticed that I do boundaries slightly differently than some other people. And I guess that's a good thing because we all should be conscious in the way that we approach these things. And I think some of it has come from having so many challenging patients sent my way um, over the last however many years. So there are quite a few practitioners um, in Melbourne and across Australia who send me their difficult patients. They go, right, you're too hard, go see Claire. Um, and that might be for a review and then they go back and work primarily with that other practitioner or they might kind of handball them to me for resolving a particular issue and then I hand them back or they may just be a permanent handball. And um, one of the things that's come up quite a lot is that some of these patients can be quite challenging and challenging in, in different ways. And I can understand for some of these patients why they've been um, sent across because it's not necessarily that they're tricky patients from a clinical point of view, but more from a, um, or not from, you know, from their medical history, but more from their, the way that they interact 
with the practitioner, the way that they interact with the clinic and the way that they show up to their own treatment. And I've taken a more, still maintaining my boundaries, and I'm just trying to actually break down how how I do this. But if someone wants to be there, they really want to get on top of their challenge, whatever it is that they're working with, and they really want to be there, but they just can't, it's, it's just not working. Like they just cannot remember to take their herbs or they can't, you know, they're trying to follow the dietary recommendations, but they just face plan into a tub of ice cream every night because they're just because they just do, or, you know, whatever it is that might be going on. And I know that that's really beyond what, where some practitioners can, can operate. For me, I just kind of, um, I guess, take, take that step back. And I see that I'm like, okay, I'm not actually treating you for your skin condition or your fertility condition or your reproductive issue. I'm treating you for the fact that you can't take your herbs or I'm treating you for the fact that you're so anxious that you are binge eating every night because that's the problem that's blocking us being able to solve the actual problem that you're coming for. And so, um, and so I shift I, I, and I actually call it out in the consult room. I say, well, we're actually not going to get anywhere until we can sort this out. So tell me about this, you know, tell me more about it. What do you need in order for this to be able to happen? And you know, and we kind of explore explore things in, in that way. Or if they've got a, a really challenging behaviour that might be coming out, I'll call it out and I'll say, I've, I've noticed that you can be quiet, um, you know, that I'm feeling at time, you know, I'm, and I'll reflect back to them what my experience is of, of interacting with them and, and I'll say, it, 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 open up a conversation that will invite them to perhaps share other times that that might show up for them or, um, you know, just to find out what's going on. Like, are, are you, are you okay? Like, are you feeling anxious or are you, whenever people are being spiky, usually there's some kind of hurt or anger or frustration or they feel like they're not being heard that's underneath. And so that compassion piece for me is a really important part of boundaries because I need to come at it with compassion and understanding to feel like I'm doing a good job. That makes so much sense to me. And I think also what you're saying without saying it is you're also talking about um, time and expectation because I think I, I, I like you have sometimes got had these clients sent to me too, because I deal mostly with complex fertility issues over 40. And by the time you've got over 40, there's a very good chance that you've got a whole wealth of life stuff happening at the same time that you've got to deal with before you can get to the egg quality. Um, but th- there's something in there about giving ourselves as practitioners the grace and the, the guts to have the conversation with the clients. We need more time to deal with this. What is your expectation for what I can do within what you're doing? I can do this stuff, but let's work on the binge eating, to use your example, but that might mean that you're with me for six months instead of three, or you're, you know, I would like to, you know, the confidence to adjust and have that conscious conversation about what do you expect under these circumstances? What do you expect from me? What do I expect from you? How can we, can we make this work together? Just giving ourselves a bit of grace in this conversation. And it really brings to mind, uh, I completely muffed a conversation like that this year, completely muffed it. I didn't get conscious enough about what was going on quick enough to call out uh, 
a, a relationship because we're in a relationship with our patients, but a relationship issue I was seeing developing with my client, whereby I didn't realize till afterwards I had played into their recreation of a trauma, a traumatic um, parenting experience. And I didn't get conscious enough about it quick enough to call it. And so bringing that consciousness and then also as you have a lot of guts in calling that stuff out. I think it's not to be underestimated how hard it is to, to get conscious with your patients when something isn't working and actually to address the demon in the room. It's a hard thing to do. It takes a lot of courage. My gallbladder energy gets a workout in those moments. Having that courage to, to just speak what, you know, what my heart needs to get out there. I'm very heart focused and very heart centered in the way that I communicate with my patients. It takes a lot of practice. Having those difficult conversations, there's actually a really great audiobook um, which you can have a listen to, and it's called Crucial Conversations. Um, and it's all about how to have these conversations. There's also a similar one by the same person, I believe, and it's called Difficult Conversations. But those two audiobooks, brilliant to listen to, and I would recommend listening to them at least three times because you'll get something new each time you listen. That was. My very first business coach, actually, probably nearly, nearly eight or nine years ago now, that was one of the first books that they recommended for me to read. And boy, oh boy, what was it a, well, to listen to. And they were really great to listen to. And that's, I guess, set the scene for me internally. It probably took me a little while to begin to actually have those conversations with people. Um, and I'm sure I could listen to them again. It's been another it's been a few years since I've listened. I'm sure I could listen to them again and get um, and get some more pearls by listening to them again. But um, we need to have those conversations because that's what we do. We're health providers. Um, we're not there necessarily to be their friend. And sometimes the kindest thing is a stern word. And sometimes the kindest thing is a hug. But um, And actually maybe that's a good question about boundaries. We can come back to that hugs for patients. Um, maybe not in the initial console. <laughs> but also not in COVID times, right? That's obviated the need for that conversation. But yes. Come to Australia. We're all hugging each other again. Um, we've, we basically all had COVID in the last six weeks, the entire country. And, um, and now we're just like, okay, well, that's done. Um, Everybody, <laughs> countrywide hug. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe we could segue towards um, this topic, which it sounds like we're both kind of getting there anyway, in that, you know, how do we conduct ourselves in terms of, you know, I think you and I are, are similar in the sense that we're, we can sit in that position of authority with a lot of ease and grace now. Um, maybe it wasn't always like that for you. It definitely was not always like that for me. I had to practice it and work at it. But I, I am the doctor. I am the healthcare provider and I make prescriptions. I don't make recommendations. I don't say, oh, take it if you like, or, you know, you might want to think about taking this supplement. No, this is the supplement that I'm prescribing for you. This is the dosage. This is how many bottles of it you're going to take. You know, this is your herbal medicine prescription. This is the dosage. You're going to be on this formula. We're going to modify it, but you're going to be on this formula for the next four weeks and then we're going to review it and we're going to change to another formula after that, you know, and you need, I need to see you 
twice a week for acupuncture for the next six weeks. And then after that, I'm going to see you weekly for however many weeks. Like that, that's a prescription. And that's holding them on the customer journey. So from that initial consultation, bring us back, but from that initial consultation, what you want is for the client to you get you to go away with an idea about who the client is, what the diagnosis is, what they need and what you're going to do. And for them to go away with those things, plus here's your job. Here's what you need to do to meet me and to get where we're both wanting you to go. I had a conversation with a client last week about her nose, actually, which was went something like, I think you have a polyp up your nose. When you are asleep on the table, I can hear you are not breathing properly. I don't think your sleeping problems are because of X, Y, or Z. They're because you can't breathe. You need to see an ENT and have somebody look up your nose. And then the conversation this week was, have you seen the EMT? Have they looked up your nose? Like, <laughs> There's an accountability piece in there for clients that they need from us too. They need to feel held in that way. It provides a lot of reassurance to patients. Um, if we don't provide that structure, then they don't have a frame of reference on which to gauge their experience with us other than how they felt, whether they thought we were a nice person. You know, if our rapport is enough to get them over the line for, you know, a few visits and then after that they go, well, you know, I've seen them three, four times, it's been a month, it's been six weeks and, you know, they didn't really tell me when to come back and, I just don't know. I I don't know if I feel any different. Um, I don't really know what I should be expecting. And and I've heard, I was actually watching this person on Instagram and I think I might go see them because, you know, I really like the way that they talk about this. And, you know, before you know where you are, you've lost the patient. And that is not an accident that 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 happens. And I think as well, you know, and I was just reflecting on this today when you were talking about money questions as being a red flag. I had a patient today who is about to embark on their third round of IVF. Um, they've done two egg collections and have had no embryos. There's been no transfer. They've had uh, none of their embryos have made it to blastocyst stage and so um, it's been cancelled and they're about to embark on round number three. I'm yet to meet the husband. I was just about to say, yeah, that's that's... Where's the other half of that, right? Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah, who I'm told has horrendous digestive issues, but his sperm is amazing. Um, and he hasn't come to see me because he's sceptical. And um, he's also worried about cost. And he's also the one that's pushing for IVF. Um, and so whilst um, in one breath my patient was telling me how they've booked a holiday to Europe, for six weeks and they're about to embark on the third cycle of IVF, which is about $12,000 up front in, in Australia. Um, then in the next, in the very next breath, um, then she was telling me how, how the Chinese medicine treatment was getting expensive. Oh. And part of me went, you know, and, you know, cause we're talking about, you know, the husband wanting to come in and, you know, there needs to be a compromise because he doesn't want to take a multi and zinc and CoQ10. So he's really only, his limit's about two capsules a day. And that sounds like it's going to be about four or six capsules a day. And, and, you know, on the inside, I'm having all of these responses of going, um, you know, 
it's not my rules, right? His body is operating in response to the environment that it's in and I can't just go, okay, well, seeing you negotiated so well, let's just make it two tablets a day. That's not how it works, even if I wanted it to. And I'm having these, you know, these reflections around all these pricing conversations, which happens so infrequently for me now. And I was thinking, oh, well, you know, you're off spending all this money on, on, on these other things and, and the treatment with me is so cheap in comparison and such good value in comparison because my success rates, you know, and I know what my success rates are in comparison to going to IVF. But then I thought, okay, I need to calm down here and I need to reflect on what I'm hearing here, which is that my patient doesn't see the value in coming to see me and I'm thinking okay this is a failure on my behalf I haven't effectively communicated to my patient what the value is that they're getting in coming to see me and they see greater value in another round of IVF where they're doing nothing different they're seeing greater value in a holiday to Italy than they are in something that's got a greater success rate and so you know I think those conversations that we have about money and how how we respond to them or how we respond to rejection in general, you know, and whether that rejection happens before they've booked in or the rejection happens before they rebook after that first consult. I think we need to take into account that there's those, those moments for reflection where not necessarily that we need to adjust our pricing because people say it's too expensive. I think when they say it's too expensive, they're, they're saying, I don't see the value because people do, many people, not everyone, but the majority of people who come to see me in my clinic have plenty of money to spend on other things and it's really just a matter of how they how they perceive so my job is to communicate what what the value is in what i offer i think you're spot on we all know we've had these conversations internally with ourselves which is like oh i really want that thing and you've already decided to buy it it doesn't really matter how much it costs you know you're going to buy it <laughs> that's our job to be that magnetic thing that, as you say, communicates that value and is so valuable and so wanted by the client, the whole experience, it doesn't really matter how much we're charging, they're sold in on the experience they're getting. And I'm, what came to mind as you were talking earlier is the idea of, um, actually, it's a little bit like having kids, a little bit like having children that if you don't hold the client on that customer journey and communicate that you understand best your job and you hold the value and guide them, actually it's not a secure attachment. <laughs> the client flounders in that. It doesn't feel comfortable in its body. You know, there's, there's a lot of parallels around parenting there really for me when I hear you talk about it like that. Mm. I think for me um, the shift in me moving into this kind of thought space around, you know, being able to portray the value that I offer as opposed to worrying about am I, you know, are my prices right, came from a sales seminar that I went to a few years ago. So many, um, so many fabulous ways in which I've changed the way that I do my business have come from generic, you know, non-Chinese medicine business training, um, which I cannot recommend highly enough. Like, do it. You absolutely must do business training, business mentoring, business courses that aren't in the Chinese medicine world, that aren't even necessarily in the health world, because the principles map across and there's just better calibre learning to, that, that can happen when you're outside of um, the health space. 
Um, we kind of colour things and taint things in a weird way, us health practitioners. The concept for me, there was a question that was asked at this sales training. They said, who likes going shopping? And everyone put their hand up. Who doesn't like going shopping? I mean, some people don't, right? But almost everyone in the room put their hand up. I love going shopping, you know, and there's certain things about going shopping that I love, but we love spending money. We love going shopping. We love buying things. You know, who likes buying things? Me. Like so many of us love buying things. Then the next question, who likes being sold to? Nobody put their hand up because we don't like being sold to. And so the workshop was all about how do we create a buying environment? How do we create an environment where people want to buy what we have so that we don't need to sell what we have? We don't need to get into this kind of sales mode. We just create a buying environment. Um, And so for me, I'm always reflecting back on the ways in which I position myself in in my marketing and promotion, which there isn't that much of, um, you know, the way in which, you know, word of mouth and the way that I have websites, you know, all of the ways in which I do networking and and that sort of um, and that sort of thing, and how in all of those moments where people have an opportunity to hear what I have to say and to interact with with me or to get a vibe of what I'm about as a person what my values are in each of those moments I'm helping to create or not I'm helping to create an environment where people want to buy what I have to offer I hard resonate with what you're saying some some of the big stuff you and I bonded about is about like seeing ourselves as entrepreneurs and I I encourage everyone who's listening who's a practitioner because we really are we do we do we can't afford to just do healthcare. Right. Because what you and I are really talking about is, yes, we have the core clinical skills and they're very important because that takes you home with the client. But all of the other stuff surrounding that about running clinics, employing staff, managing a customer, that all is entrepreneurial skill sets. And and I have felt historically much more at home in an entrepreneurial environment on conferences, on sales than I do in the Chinese medicine world because it's a very different mindset. And As you know, I've just opened um, my new free community, which is a growth partnership. And what I'm trying to do in there is exactly bringing together all the different strands that I see people niching. And I want to talk about how they need to exist together. So that entrepreneurial and the mindset and the personal development and the clinical skills and all the things that go together in one place that makes you a fabulous practitioner and a business person and a successful practitioner And so much of that work that we need to do on ourselves to get the clients, to keep the clients, to create the experience um, is we have to teach ourselves and our clients to value what we do. And I don't think you can do that as a practitioner alone. You have to have all that entrepreneurial side too. It's a must have because we're, we're business owners, unless you're employed in which case then you're an employee and you need to, you know, you'll hopefully be given some kind of framework on, how your employer wishes you to operate whilst you're working at their clinic. But by and large, we're, we're entrepreneurs, we're self-employed, and so we just have to be good at business, otherwise we just can't make a good living. Shall I take us back to the next steps from the initial consultation? Yeah. To look what happens after that client has left your room. What's your process there? So if I'm doing telehealth, um, it's slightly different than if I'm than if they're in my clinic, um, but essentially, if they're in my clinic, they'll 
um, you know, we'll talk about the plan and then they walk out to my reception desk and they, they then interact with my, um, with my admin staff. And so it's already written into their chart what their prescriptions are, everything will be laid out for them at the front desk, all the instructions on how to take it. If they've got raw herbs, it'll all be bagged up and there'll be instructions on how to boil it up and how to store it and how to drink it and all that jazz. And so my staff are really well trained on just creating a really nurturing experience and people feel really held. And my staff will always say, okay, so Claire would like to see you, you know, and they will state the frequency and they'll say, would you like to go ahead and book those in now? Is there a particular time that works best for you? And then, you know, they find a, find a time, they say, right, well, let's book that ahead so that you've got the time that works for you. And if we need to make changes, we can, but um, at least we know that you're locked in. So that process is a really important part of the process because there's just so many reasons. Um, it helps with my calendar management. Um, it helps the patient to feel like, okay, I don't have that to-do list item in my head anymore because most of the people that I deal with are just stressed out and they've, they've got 50 million tabs open in their brain anyway. Having to make appointments all the time is just not what we want to do. We want the focus to be on their treatment rather than on the admin of booking appointments and, and all of that stuff. I love that phrase that you just used. I don't even know if you know you did it, probably because it's you, you do, but Claire would like to see you. That is such an important phrase that tells the patient, and you've trained your, I'm sure you've trained your staff to say that. Yep, that is the only thing that they're allowed, that's the only way they're allowed to say it. They can't say, when would you like to come back in? Right. Yep, it would be, Claire would like to see you. Tell, say, say something, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. Say, say why that phrase. Say, say what goes on behind it, what is communicated to the client with that phrase. Say why you've chosen it. Um, so because it's the way that the, um, it's part of the prescription. So it's, it's, the, it's my staff communicating to them that, that there's that expectation that the treatment plan and the treatment schedule is a real thing. Like we really mean it and we really do, when we say weekly, we really do mean weekly. We really want to find a time that's going to work for you. We're going to, you know, we're going to kick it off. It's not that they get to book in whenever they feel like it or that, um, you know, and sometimes people will say, look, I need to check my work diary. Can I call you about it? And we say yes because I, I don't want people to, you know, and sometimes that's just like a, a space filler where they just need time to think about it. Some people that's just part of their, that's just part of their process that they need to have time to digest it or they need to talk to their partner or whatever it is. I don't pressure people if they're not going to do it there and then. The other thing that is important about, um, about that phrase is that sometimes people aren't even prompted to rebook or they'll just say rebook when you feel like it or come back, you know, when would you like to come back or, you know, like there's... Well, they'll only book one ahead, right? I'll come, I'd like to see you next week. They're not getting that whole journey of here's how long it'll take, here's what I need to get there. And also when they're saying, I'm hearing also when they're saying, Claire would like to see you, that means that they're hearing that you have thought about it and you've made a plan. Hmm. And I love that. I love that they will have, even through your staff, felt held in that. Yeah. And that my staff are communicating the same info that I am. Hmm. 
And so there would have been a process in place there. So I want to talk about also the fact that none of this stuff happens without us being really clear on the system that we have in place, the process whereby you will have been passed all of these forms to the client at the appropriate time. Your staff will have chased them up to make sure they're in there, at a, if possible, at, a, at the right time. You will have write, written down a note or communicated in whatever way it is to your staff, here's how you need to deal with that client when they leave. There's a whole thought through process in place. And I think a lot of practitioners don't realize that actually sitting down, and, and this is a thing that I do a lot in my masterminds, we map our processes and we stress test them with other with our accountability partners. We look at the intention and thoughtfulness of the process itself making all the difference to the customer journey. Absolutely. And um, you know, as well as I do, Nava, that I love a good mind map as well. And I've done a mind map of all of like the customer journey from start to finish. You know, what are all of the ways in which a customer is going or patient is going to interact with my clinic? It's it's epic. Like there's so many, so many possibilities. There's so many ways in which people are hearing from me or hearing from my mailing list or they're hearing from, you know, they're coming into the clinic or the so many things. And there's so many, um, so many opportunities we have to practice getting it right because it's a constant refinement process it's not a one and done we need to revisit and refine and look at okay is this working which parts are working well which parts you know can we play around with to see if we can get some better outcomes and what a pain in the butt that is too man what I just for once would like to just put something in place and have it just be the thing but it's just never is right as soon as you've got it locked that works and then something unexpected will happen. Something new will happen and throw you, and you're like, oh, I didn't think of that. I've got to readjust the process again. Or, you know, like I did last year, which was like shifting my focus more toward the, the teaching side of things and the mentoring side and the masterminding side and away from the practitioner side of me. I had to completely rejig everything in my life that took a whole four involved months of process to get right. And just, oh my God, Claire. Wouldn't it be nice just to put it there and have it stay there just for once? For all eternity, right? Oh. <laughs> so just to say that whatever you're taking when you're listening from this, it's a starting point. You'll have to revise it. You'll have to change it as new things happen, as you grow as a practitioner, as your priorities change, as you maybe go and have a family, you know, but having that mind map as you do, I like a, I like you know, boxes and arrows and things like that. However it works for your brain to do it, having it written down and not holding it in your head is important. And then you've got a framework to change things from. I, I really agree with you. And, you know, one of the ways in which I've had conversations with practitioners about in, in the mentoring groups that I've run is around the idea that our clinics are living entities in and of their own right. And so it makes sense that it's going to grow and evolve over time and its needs are going to change as it kind of grows up and matures. And um, we, you know, we're, we're responding to the way in which our clinic changes over time. Um, it's just a natural, it's just part of the way in which we interact with any person. You know, we, we, we look at what their needs are and we respond accordingly. And um, yes, it is sometimes a bit of a pain in the ass, <laughs> but we can do it with love because we love our clinics just like they're our own children. 
They're our own little babies. Quite right. Yeah. So, so as we come to the end, have we wrung this subject completely dry? I think the initial consultation is really a microcosm, as it turns out, for conversations around boundaries and processes and courage and organisation and communication and value and selling and all the things that are involved. So by the time you've thought all of these things through and you've done all the things that we've said in this consultation, actually the clients will just come in and they'll come in for as long as you want and do the things you want, maybe not, but (laughs) it will be a much easier thing to have a client come into your clinic, establish the relationship you want, charge the money you need, have the life you want as a result, all flows from this conversation that you're having with your client that is the tip of the iceberg of everything we've talked about today. I agree. And I, and I like the way that you've just summed that up. And you've basically said that everything in our clinic affects everything else that we do in our clinic. All of the processes in, you know, that are there or not in our clinic are going to affect the way that your initial consult runs and the ways in which those, um, those patients become, become ongoing patients or not, that there's so many moving parts and it's, it's a delicate balance and um, you just keep refining and iterating and getting feedback and making changes over time to, um, you know, I think this, um, you know, the topic of this podcast is a bit of a red herring in some ways that it's about the initial consultation, but it's also just about the way in which your clinic runs in general. And one final thought that comes to me, which is that you and I have referenced all the way through that we've had support in doing all this stuff. So it doesn't really matter where you get it from as a practitioner, but nobody's supposed to do this alone. If you're sitting here and listening to this in your car thinking, how am I going to do all these things? How do I translate all of this chat into my own clinic? Well, you're not supposed to do it by yourself. However you find the right person for you, whether it's mentoring, supervision, coaching, um, classes, you know, masterminds, whatever it is from whoever it is, wherever in the world it is, because the world is open now, you're not supposed to do it alone. So reach out and find somebody, even if it's only a colleague, because you're in your first year and you have zero bucks and you're just going to reach out to a colleague in the same situation and you're going to be accountability partners. Reach out and get the support. Nobody's supposed to do it on their own. I'm imagining there's going to be some people who will listen to this episode a few times and create a checklist for themselves and just go through for the rest of this year and just complete all the items on the checklist until their clinic is just humming along nicely. Well, if you do that, then tag me and Claire in so we can see what you're doing. That would be totally awesome. We want to hear about it. We really do. And I'd like to see if someone could make something organised from this long conversation we've had, I'd really like to see what it looks like. It would, it would fit so well with a mind map. I don't know how well it would work on a list. Mm-hmm. If you're a list person, I'm sure you could create a list out of it. Thank you for listening, dear listeners. It's always great to have you as our audience and we love to hear your feedback. We love to hear all of the comments and the reflections that you have. Um, We'd love to hear about your initial consultation. How does it work in your clinic? What are the processes that, that you have surrounding your initial consult and how well are they working for you? Is there anything that um, you wish we had it covered today? We'd, um, we'd love to hear from you and, um, 
and hear what's happening in your clinic in your part of the world. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed today's conversation. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. There'll be another one soon. Um, So until then, bye for now. Bye, everyone.